And good morning, Lighthouse, or good evening, or whatever you're watching this uh, video. We're glad you're here today to join us in our continued study from the book of 2 Peter. We're in the second chapter, verses 4 through to 9. You know, uh, I've entitled the message, Judgment is Coming. Have you ever had someone say to you, you're judging me? Uh, usually your response is to back up and say, uh, no, I, I'm not. You, you tend to deny it. Uh, judging in our society is frowned upon and looked upon with disdain. Because people say, you shouldn't be judging, you shouldn't be doing that. Uh, people will sometimes quote from Matthew 7, 1, which says, judge not that you may not be judged. And, and the idea is that Christians shouldn't judge because we tend to be judgmental. It's, it's looked down upon, it's frowned upon, it's just not something we should be doing. However, in all honesty, they take Matthew 7, that one verse, totally out of context. For us, as believers, we talk about a loving God that wants everybody to repent from sin and come to salvation. But if we believe that's all there is to God, about God being loving and, and, and caring uh, for us, then sadly we are mistaken about the character of God. Sometimes when you listen, to, whether on social media or uh, on your TV sets, whatever you're watching, and sometimes you'll watch TV preachers talk about the loving, caring, wonderful God and how nice he is. But if we believe that's all there is to the character of God, we are sadly mistaken. See, God is a holy God, correct? You see, yeah, that's right. Is sin holy? Absolutely not. No, God cannot look upon sin without judging it. That is his character. God sent his son into the world to save us from our sin that would someday drive us to hell. And so he said, I'm coming here. I've judged the world. I've sent a savior to save you from your sin. And that part of his judgment is saving the world, but also judging the world for what is wrong. People like to look at God's love, his grace, his forgiveness, and that's all good, but... We can't forget about God's wrath, God's judgment, and God's holiness. All aspects and attributes of who God is. God is a God of judgment. And he will punish those who willfully sin against his commands. Let me say, well, Pastor, that sure isn't a very encouraging message today, really. Uh, in all sense, uh, when we think about that, we think, well, that's not really what I came to hear. But the thing is, we need to understand the full character of who God is. Since God's judgment is real, then we need to ask them, how are we as believers to live? Peter in this passage gives us three examples of God's judgment to prove that God does judge sin and sinners. It's also a warning to false teachers that judgment is coming for them. You can't teach the false uh, truths, uh, and that's really an anomaly. You can't really teach that which is wrong Expect I can do this, and there's no judgment or accountability for what I'm saying and doing. And God said, through the Apostle Peter, judgment day is coming for false teachers. In 2 Peter 2, verses 4 to the first part of verse 10, we read this. For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to change of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, 
when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, if he rescued righteous Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented in his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I thank you for the word of God. I thank you, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit you inspired men of old, Lord, to speak and to write down exactly what you wanted to write down. So, Lord, I just pray for your blessing on the Word of God today as it goes forth. I pray that you will use it to speak to the men and women that listen to the message today, that they will be encouraged, challenged, and strengthened in the inner man as they listen to your Word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Peter outlines three examples of God's judgment to press home to the point how to live holy lives in an ungodly world. The first judgment of the fallen angels, the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah, are the, the judgments he talks about. He says in verse 4, For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to change of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. It's important to understand that Peter gives these examples in contrast to the made-up stories by the false teachers that were addressed last week in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3. through in Jude 6, we read these words. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under, under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. The first example that he gives of God's judgment is of God judging the angels who literally at one point served him and rebelled against him. He said, they were judged. What we see here is the certainty of God's justice against angels that sinned. The biblical scholars today kind of disagree which angels Peter had really in mind. Some say it's a reference to the angels who followed him in the original rebellion. You can read about that if you want to in your own Bibles in Isaiah, the 14th chapter, verses 12 through to 15, or in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28, verse 15, or in Revelation 12, verses 3 and 4, all references to these fallen angels. However, if Satan and the angels were confined until the day of judgment, then they would be free to roam the earth and entice men and women to sin. Other biblical scholars actually feel at this point that he was referring to Genesis 6, in which the wicked angels who followed Satan in the fall cohabited with the women on earth. The sin was so terrible at that juncture that God confined these angels to Tartarus, where they were to await final judgment. Whichever interpretation you follow on this passage, the point is crystal clear. God judged the angelic realm, and he will also judge those who teach falsely. In verse 5, we read these words. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Just as God did not spare his angels, he didn't spare the ancient world from the flood. Again, an example that Peter is citing to say, God is a God who judges. Something that we don't really feel too excited about. 
that it, it should, within ourselves, cause us to do a double take and think, realize that the way I live my life will be judged. How do I know that? Well, we can go to 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, and you can read that God will judge each one as if by fire. But going back to the Genesis 6 passage, at Genesis 6, 6 and 7, we read these interesting verses. And the Lord regretted that he'd made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. I think the old King James said, and it grieved God uh, that he made man. A sad, sad verse. But even though God was determined to, at that juncture, wipe out humanity, he didn't because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There's the part of the verse that we kind of take heart and take encouragement in. We found that Noah found favor because he stood out in contrast to the ungodly people that were around him. Noah was not a passive believer uh, playing it easy until Jesus took him home. He was a righteous man. He was blameless upon the people of his time, says the word of God. He is commended in Genesis because he expected God's coming judgment and built an ark in obedience to God's command. God said, this is what I want you to do, so he did it. Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 11, verse 7 says this, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The Bible says that Noah was not only a builder of an ark, but he was a preacher of righteousness. He spoke the truth. Uh, an author, Michael Green, says this, How can a good man keep quiet when he saw others going to ruin? And so we see that even as Noah was building his ark, the Bible calls him a preacher of righteousness, which means he was actually challenging the people around him to be saved, to turn to God. Of course, we know not many did. But just by building the boat, no one would have shown faith in the judgment and mercy of God. Recognizing that God had revealed to him that there's a flood coming, he's going to destroy the entire earth because it's grieving my heart that I've made man, but Noah, you found grace in my eyes. And so as a result of that, uh, I want you to carry out this plan of mine. So by building a boat, he showed his faith. He displayed uh, to those who probably mocked and made fun of him. Hey, Noah, what are you building a boat for? because he was far away from any body of water. Yet from his own family, seven believed Noah and joined him in his venture. Peter makes it clear that God's judgment was inevitable upon a wicked and degenerate people. But he also points out that God protected Noah and spared him from the flood. Again, examples of God's judgment, but also of God's rescue. Peter's message is not one of doom and gloom, but shows there is a way of escape through Jesus Christ. Another thought I want to bring out is you say, well, you know, Noah built our, you know, that was pretty impressive what he did. That's true. But you take a look, and I kind of did a bit of study on this. Noah spent many years building the ark, and the best answer I really got in terms of research, it actually took him approximately anywhere from 55 to 75 years of his life to build that boat. Could you imagine having the faith and belief in God 
even though God says, I'm a God of judgment, I'm going to bring a flood that's going to wipe out the entire planet. But hey, Noah, I want you to build this ark. And he's building it year after year, 55 to 75 years, building an ark for judgment that he knew was coming. My friends, that takes faith and belief in a God, that he's a God of judgment and that he's going to carry out his word. So as he built, he would be a living testimony to God's truth to the ungodly people around him. What are you building a boat for? Ah, that flood's never going to come. But we also, my friends, live amongst an ungodly people who mock our faith and our beliefs. That is our world today. I think we must be like Noah, steadfast, living righteously in a corrupt, decadent society that has really lost its way. And we see evidence of that more and more every single day. Then in verse 6, he cites the third example of God's judgment. It says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented in his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Sodom and Gomorrah always have been represented in Scripture as a picture of sin and rebellion, especially in the Old Testament. The sin of these towns, as the Scripture lays out, was sexual sin, homosexuality. But the book of Ezekiel also in chapter 16, uh, verses 49, says this, Behold, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She had her daughters at pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. And God said, that's it, I am judging them. So Peter wants us to keep the focus on sin and judgment, something to be watched out for. Uh, Peter used that word lawless to describe people in those cities. In the first letter, he states, Christians have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans do. He said in 1 Peter 4, 3, For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He said, that was your life in the past. You're not to do that again. But the description, he shows the disgust that Christians should have for this kind of lifestyle and that there is judgment coming. Hey, when it comes to the practice of the world, do you uh, look at it and say, hey, isn't that great? Or do you have a sense of disgust? Learn to hate the things that God hates. Learn to love the things that God loves. That should be our desire as believers. And seeking to be more and more like Christ, learn to love the things that God loves and learn to hate the things that God hates. Does God hate things? You bet he does. He hates sin, my friend. Never, ever forget that. Say, so how could I ever forget that? Well, we see God's hatred for sin, specifically when we look to the cross, my friend, and we see the suffering that Jesus Christ went through on our behalf, and then you see God's hatred for sin and what he, how he took it out on his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, God judges all practices, such as it was mentioned, as he did the behavior of the cities by burning them. He talks about burning sulfur and mentioned dense smoke. The story is meant to warn us that God made an example of what is to happen to those who are ungodly. We forget about that. I was talking to a friend once who went to a, a funeral home, 
and they were passing out these little, nice little cards that was really, really nice. And there was, there was a little ditty said, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should have everlasting life. And somebody says, they missed something in that, didn't they? I said, yeah, they did. Because what's missing out of that verse that was quoted at that funeral home in that little card was that they should not perish. The part of perishing was taken out. People don't want to talk about hell today. People don't want to talk about judgment. They want to talk about loving, caring God. And my friend, if you want to understand the true character of God as seen in the scriptures, you need to understand that God is a God who will judge. He's loving. He's caring. He's a, a God that you can look up to. He's immutable in all his ways. But you need to understand this, my friend. He's a God who will judge. That is his character. That is his nature. So, yes, this, these stories, these illustrations that Peter has given us, these three, are an example of what happens, that God is a God who judges. And just like the flood, there's an illustration of God's mercy in this one, the rescue of Lot. The fact that Lot is referred to as being righteous actually might surprise us, surprise me at times, especially if you read the Genesis account and go like, oh, really, Lot righteous? Come on. He comes across most often as a carnal believer with no backbone, greedy, cowardly, and weak. Uh, Peter insists that Lot was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, so there's perhaps more to the story of Lot than we realize. There's evidence for Lot's righteous when you think of Abraham interceding for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah with the Lord, but the Lord said, hey, and he said, look, if there's only 50, would you spare the cities? He said, if I find 50, I'll spare the cities. He gets down to 10. He said, if I find 10, I'll spare these cities from judgment. Why was that argument so strong on Abraham's part? Because he's thinking about his nephew Lot and his daughters and his wife that were there. And so he, we see that there was a sense of righteousness to Lot's life that Abraham, his would intercede for his nephew before the Lord. And so, here again, Peter's making a couple of points. Judgment is, is promised as a pattern is revealed. And what he's trying to say, I want to show you from Scripture, God judges. Here are three specific examples. Also, living the life that God approves in a world under judgment will be tough. We can look at examples that Peter's given us about judgment, and take note that should resonate with us in this last example. Lot lived, I would say, in our world with pressures to conform and compromise to what's going on in the world around him. How do we summarize those illustrations? I pull this out of a commentary. First of all, when you look at the fallen angels, you see that the main point is no one is exempt from judgment. Secondly, judgment, though delayed, is real. We look at the flooded world under Noah. God's inevitable judgment can be escaped because Noah found grace in the eyes of God. We also are to hold that offer out to others even if they mock us. We're to tell people you can escape the judgment and wrath of God by putting your faith in the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, his, the Lord and Savior. We look at the filthy cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see the pattern of judgment has been revealed. We also see that living a godly life in an ungodly world 
will be hard. My friend, to live today in the world we live in, to live a godly, Christ-like life, so that our language, the, everything about us reveals holiness and godliness will be mocked, will put that, be put down. It's not going to be accepted as being really nice anymore. In verse 9 we read in Second Peter chapter 2, it says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So Peter starts with, first off, if, and now he goes to then. He reverses direction and states that God is in control of both the godly and the unrighteous. So if God is in control of the godly and the righteous seem to suffer while seemingly unrighteous, why do the ungodly somehow go free? The thing is, God always provides a way of escape for those who are godly. The way of trials is through what God will effect in the last day, just as he protected Noah from the flood. Peter said that God knows how to rescue godly men, and it's shown in the way he rescued Lot in verse 7. The godly are not immune to temptation or to the test of living in an ungodly world. We're not immune. There are challenges for those of us who profess to know Christ to live holy, godly lives in a world that will mock us, put us down, or ask us, what's wrong with you? We need to know that God can rescue us from those situations and from those challenges. God really knows how to rescue people. That's his business. So if God has saved you by his grace, he'll preserve you into heaven by his grace. And so Peter wants to encourage us to have the courage like Noah and Lot to stand against the tide of godlessness around us. And if we suffer for our sins through our holy living, we can have the joy of looking forward to the coming of Christ and our eternal reward when we get to be with him. And that's why I, I phrased a while back the whole question of where is your home at? If your home is here, you're going to struggle. If your home is in heaven, you're going to struggle even greater because you're going to realize this world is not my home. Yeah, I'm passing through and there's going to be trials and there's going to be challenges through this world to live a holy, godly life in light of all the wickedness we see in our world today. Some of you will say, and I've heard this said, said before, I don't believe in the Old Testament God of judgment. I like the New Testament better because you see about Jesus where he's speaking about grace and love and all that great stuff. But actually, when you say that phrase, you show your ignorance of Scripture, my friend. Because actually, Jesus spoke more graphically of hell than anyone else in the Bible. In Luke chapter 17, he spoke of Sodom's destruction to warn about the final judgment when he returns. He says, I'm coming back, and when I'm coming back, I'm coming back to judge. Something we should all take to heart. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation reveals a God who will bring judgment on sinners, but also shows mercy to all who repent and trust in him. Our God is a merciful God. So Jesus didn't come to die on a cross just to give us warm, fuzzy feelings about God's love. See, he offered to pay the penalty of our sin that we deserve to rescue us from the wrath to come. And the word, scripture says from 1 Thessalonians 1.10 that God's wrath will be revealed to all those who hold to ungodliness and unrighteous living. 
So the question is, where do you stand today? Your relation with Jesus Christ. Have you put your faith and trust in him? You know, the one thing we need to mention, we always present the gospel, that by putting our faith and trust in Christ, we are rescued from sin and brought into relation with Jesus Christ. As a result of that, we have eternal life with our Lord and Savior. But when we don't put our faith and trust in Christ and we refuse God's offer of salvation, the scripture is clear, my friend, you are going to hell. Because I've never heard that before. Well, it's taught here in scripture, my friend. You don't hear it very often because people don't like to mention that word. And the truth is, hell is real. And God came to redeem a lost humanity so that they, by their own choice, would not end up in hell, but end up in heaven by putting their faith and trust in the finished work of Christ on Calvary's cross. What choice have you made? Have you put your trust in him? I hope and trust so. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word to our hearts today. And I just pray, Lord, you would take your word and bless it to our hearts. And Lord, for anyone here today that does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that they would ask to be saved. Because the word of God is clear, Lord, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All you need to do is ask God to save you, and he will. Put your faith and trust in him and believe and follow after with all your heart. Father, bless your word to our hearts today, and thank you for all that you've done. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.